You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Hosea. Here's Nate. Well, as we turn to Hosea chapter 12, we see God continuing to pronounce an indictment upon the people of Israel, especially the ten uh, northern tribes. And really what we're entering into is God's concluding indictment upon Israel. And then finally, with a word of hope, We have to remember that the book of Hosea really has underlying throughout it a tone of great hope. God even promised at the outset of the book that a day would come where he would be reunited with his uh, bride and that they would call him my husband. And so he's already set the tone for future restoration and great revival in Israel. But before that day comes, a day of judgment must come upon the nation. It says in verse 1, as we continue the theme of judgment, that Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. Really here in this first verse, there are three things that God points out that Israel is in error about. Uh, The first one is simply that all of their actions were actions of futility. They were feeding on the wind and pursuing the east wind all day long. Really, that's a great picture of sin, don't you think? As we pursue sin, as we pursue rebellion, as we run uh, from God, as our hearts drift from him, it's not a satisfying endeavor. There's the excitement, the exhilaration, the uh, endorphins or the adrenaline, if you will, of sin. It is, as Hebrews 11 tells us, pleasurable for a moment. But in the at the end of the day, it's like wind. What have you really gotten at the at the end of it? You've you've actually become more empty as a result of pursuing it than when you began. And so they were feeding on the wind and pursuing the east wind. Also there in verse one, secondly, God says, You've multiplied falsehood and violence. Apparently, there in Israel, and there seems to be a repeated theme here throughout Hosea, there was an ill treatment of one another. There was social injustice uh, throughout the nation. Uh, Of course, there was no fear of God in their hearts, so when they looked their fellow man in the eye, there wasn't this underlying drive to be respectful and honorable and just toward their fellow man. No, without the fear of God, there was the propensity or at least the allowance for them to behave very brutally towards their fellow man. And apparently they were lying to one another, being very violent to one another. There was some kind of underlying uh, sinful lying mentality uh, there in Israel at the time. Also, God says, you've made a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. They were turning to these surrounding nations, uh, pledging their allegiance to them and making peace treaties with them, even giving oil to satisfy uh, the desires of the nations around them. The Lord, verse 2, 
has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. So both the north and the south are highlighted here in verse verse 2. We've been dealing with Jacob or Israel or Ephraim for the duration of the book, but here Judah in the south is held out uh, as well. They wouldn't experience the direct hits from Assyria, but they would eventually uh, take their lumps in the form of the Babylonians uh, when they came with Nebuchadnezzar. In the womb, now here's what God does in verse 3. He begins to make a historical reference and give it contemporary application. In the womb, he, Jacob, took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. So God here in these few verses goes back to the original Israel, a man named Jacob, from whom the whole nation had eventually come. When, when Jacob was born, you might remember he was the younger twin. He had battled his brother in the womb. Uh, and when his brother was born, he took his brother by the heel, it says in Genesis chapter 25. So what God seems to be highlighting is, hey, even Jacob uh, there from the womb and all throughout his early years had a tendency to hurt his brother. And here that tendency is played out amongst the nation of Israel in Hosea's modern time. People were hurting one another through falsehood and violence, much like Jacob had lied to gain his birthright and to gain his blessing uh, from his father Isaac. He says also in verse 3, in his manhood, he strove with God. There was a tendency to wrestle with God, a lack of submission to God. Of course, a reference to Jacob wrestling at the river Jabbok there in Genesis uh, chapter 32. Now, additionally, he says in verse 4, he met with God at Bethel. Now, they were sacrificing false gods uh, to false gods at Bethel. And so God's implication is clear. You people need to return to me. Even Jacob, who wrestled with me, who uh, strove with God and with man, he met with God at Bethel. In other words, God will do the same thing for you if you would pursue and turn to me, God is saying through the prophet Hosea to his people, Israel. So he tells them in verse 6, by the help of your God, you return. In other words, you should weep and seek the favor of God as Jacob had done years before uh, there in Bethel. In the midst of all of this rebuke is such great hope from God that the people could be restored. A merchant, verse 7, back in Hosea 12, in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself in all my labors. They cannot find in me iniquity or sin. Now, apparently, and as I hinted at before, the people in Israel at this time were guilty of injustice towards one another, cheating one another, lying to one another. God calls it in verse 7, 
the false balances in the hand in the hands of a merchant. In other words, scales uh, that were designed to benefit the merchant and rip off or deceive. Uh, the buyer. Uh, it says in Proverbs 11, verse 1, that a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. But they were behaving in insidious ways. They were defrauding uh, their customers. They were oppressing. In the, in the midst of all of it, in verse 8, what they pronounced was, but hey, we're rich. In other words, the end justifies the means. What we're doing is working. Look at our wealth. Look at our prosperity. But even though it seemed as if it was paying off, it wasn't in the end because God had seen their sin. They were prosperous. With whatever loopholes they designed and whatever ways they were using to rip off the people, uh, the wealth uh, that they'd acquired was not just. And the end had not justified the means. God says in verse 9, I am the Lord, your God, from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. Now, uh, each year they would celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. This was from Leviticus chapter 23. And in the Feast of Tabernacles, they would dwell in tents for a set period of time in order to remember when they had come out of Egypt at the Exodus and they lived in tents in the wilderness. Now, when they lived in tents there, it was God's deliverance. It was God's grace. But here God is saying, I'm going to take you back to the place where you dwell in tents as judgment uh, upon you. You'll be homeless once again as a result of this greedy sin. I spoke to the prophets, verse 10, it was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. In other words, I spoke to you in various ways and in various times and, and uh, by various means. If there is iniquity, verse 11, in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal, they shall sacrifice bulls. Their altars also are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. In other words, God is saying, I'm going to judge your altars. I think we could say the same in the sense that we know that God has spoken to us. Here he says prophets and visions and parables. We might say Old Testament, New Testament, Gospels, Psalms, uh, Epistles. We might say we have great revelation from God. It is for us to respond to the Lord. In verse 12, he says, Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a while, and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet he was guarded. I think that that God here in verse 12 and 13 is giving a little glimmer of hope. Because what he's pointing out is that Jacob, you remember when he had fled for his life from Esau back in the book of Genesis, he went out to his uncle Laban. He served hard, hard years under Laban. But when he left Laban's presence, he had wealth, he had a wife, he had flocks. Also, Israel, when they moved as a small family of 70 or so people to to, uh, Egypt, uh, there at the end of the book of Genesis, they went with not all that much. But when they departed, over 400 years later, 
through the deliverance of a prophet, Moses, when they departed, they left full. They went out empty to these places and returned to the promised land uh, very full. And I feel as if God is giving a uh, word of hope. These people served foreigners. Jacob served uh, his uh, uncle. Uh, Israel, as a family, served the Pharaoh. And they came out greatly blessed. And here the people of Israel are going to serve the Assyrians. And eventually the people in Judah serve the Babylonians. But will eventually come out very blessed by God. Ephraim, verse 14, has given bitter provocation. So his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. So instead of saying thanks to God, they provoked the Lord and said thanks for nothing. And God promises his judgment is coming. Now in verse 1 of chapter 13, the doom continues to be declared by the Lord. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted, God says, in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they, being Ephraim or Israel, sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor or like smoke from a window. Here, God seems to be talking about Ephraim specifically as a tribe. Often throughout Hosea, as we've talked about, when he mentions Ephraim, he's talking about all of the 10 northern tribes. Uh, But Ephraim here seems to be the tribe. And what he points out is that they were exalted in Israel. They were a very influential tribe over the years. The other tribes had listened to them. They had been influential. They had been leaders, uh, even in improper ways, but they had been leaders. And what God says here is that they incurred guilt through Baal and died. They are like the dew that goes away, chaff that blows away, smoke that blows away. They are temporary. They're influence he's saying because of this idolatry is gone and i think one of the things for us to remember in our modern era is that there is grace from the lord but sin as we persist in it can absolutely kill our influence we might be leaders we might have a position of prominence we might be able to speak into people's lives but sin rebellion against god will take that voice away from us. Our influence will be hindered. We will slowly evaporate uh, as a result of entering into persistent rebellion against the Lord. I think it's a warning to the heart of every leader that we would continue to walk closely with the Lord lest we sacrifice our voice on the altar of rebellion. But, verse 4 I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. And besides me, there is no Savior. So God again reminds them that they are in covenant with him and that he brought them up out of Egypt. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, verse 5, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they 
forgot me. And once again, there's that incredible concept amongst the people of Israel, and I think so prevalent amongst the people of God throughout every generation, that when the Lord feeds us, that when the Lord nourishes us, that when the Lord blesses our life, when things are relatively prosperous and easy or successful, we are so tempted to forget the Lord, to walk away from him. And so it's good for us in times of prosperity to press into God like never before. So, verse 8, I am to them like a lion. Like a leopard, I will lurk beside that way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper." Notice what God says to the people there in verse 7 to 9. He compares himself and says, Because of your sin, now I will become to you like a lion, a leopard, a bear, a wild beast. God is saying that he'll pounce on the rebellious people of Israel and bring punishment uh, upon them. Now, this is an ominous word. God had just been speaking of them like a flock. And here they are pictured as a helpless flock that come under destruction from these wild uh, animals. And God himself is saying that he is as that wild animal to the people of Israel. Their judgment is certainly looming. Where now, verse 10, is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those of whom you said, give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. They'd had kings previously, and they had a king at this moment, but the king was powerless. He says, where is your king to save you in all your cities? The only one that could help them was God himself, and God had pronounced them and given them up to judgment because of sin. Notice in verse 11, God says, I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. Now, here, at this moment, with the Assyrians looming, that's the moment that God took away his king, their king, in his wrath. When did he give them a king in his anger? Uh, Perhaps it's the kings of the north. Perhaps this is actually a statement about kings in general, that Israel was to be a theocracy, but they had requested a king, and he had given them originally Saul, and then the Davidic kingdom, God using a negative thing and turning it into a positive thing through the promises of an everlasting rule and reign through the line uh, of David. But here, perhaps, there's a little indication as to the mindset and the heart of God when the people asked for a king. I gave you, he says, verse 11, a king in my anger. The iniquity, verse 12, of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son. For at the right time, he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. Now, God is so fascinating in the way that he creates these different analogies to talk about uh, things that are on the earth and people's sin. Here, he talks about the people of Israel like an infant inside the womb. And labor pangs come. And at the right time for birth, he says, that that baby does not present himself at the opening of the womb. 
In other words, it's the time for birth. It's the perfect opportunity for birth. But the baby, it just, I mean, it's like a comic picture. He just refuses to come out uh, of uh, the womb. And God is saying to the people of Israel, listen, all this punishment is coming upon you. All of this destruction is coming upon you so that you might be reborn, so that you might revive, so that you might live, so that you might walk with me. Yet you do not do it. And uh, so just the the baffled uh, state uh, that God is in over his people. He says, shall I, verse 4, ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Now, the fascinating thing here is that probably one of the the context states that that God is pronouncing judgment upon them. He's saying, oh, I, I can't save them from Sheol at this time. I can't redeem them from death. And that he's calling forth to death and calling forth to Sheol and saying, all right, death, bring your plagues. All right, Sheol, bring your sting because compassion is hidden from my eyes. The fascinating thing in all of this is that in the New Testament, Paul the Apostle redeems this verse in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 55 and uses it as a description of the resurrection of the believer to a eternal spiritual new body received by God, the resurrection of the saints. And that we will say, oh death, where are your plagues? Oh Sheol, where is your sting? So just a glorious, hopeful tone in the midst of darkness. Though, verse 15, he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come. So God, again, is taking credit. He says, listen, when Assyria comes, it's an east wind. They're an east wind, and they are the wind of the Lord. It's fascinating how throughout the Old Testament, God would use Wicked nations, far more wicked, just on our own human scale of considering such things, than the people of Israel. But with the great revelation that they had in the mind of God, the people of Israel were behaving more wickedly than the nations around them. And it's fascinating how God was was able to use these rebellious, wicked nations to discipline and to judge his own people. And here again, we have it exemplified. He'll use the Assyrians. He calls them the wind of the Lord. He says, they shall come rising from the wilderness and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. It's almost like a description of of the locusts coming upon the land. But this wind, when it comes, it will it will dry everything up. Every river, every fountain, every spring will be parched. And shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Everything of value would be taken there by the Assyrians. Verse 16, Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God and they shall fall by by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed to pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. This is a gruesome judgment that the Assyrians would bring upon the people of God. Now in chapter 14, we have... God's promise of a glorious future for the nation of Israel. You remember here that this is 
uh, embedded within the story of Hosea and Gomer. And that Gomer, even though she ran from Hosea in her prostitution, that Hosea pursued her and wanted to be reunited to her. So is the picture between God and Israel. Hosea 2 verse 16 says, God speaking, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. In other words, God says, the day of restoration and reunification and remarriage, so to speak, is coming. And here we have that concept laid out for us in chapter 14. Return, O Israel, verse 1, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity except what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses. We will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. It's interesting that when the return came from the people of Israel, one of the things that they would say is take away all iniquity. In other words, when they came back, there would not be a a lack of perspective about their sin. I think sometimes we think of the grace of God and the mercy of God as being synonymous with being uh, out of touch with our sinful reality. But actually, when you're conscious of your sin, then you are able to receive the grace of God. They were conscious of it at this point. Notice also that they leave behind specific sins, trusting in Assyria to save them, trusting in their own horses or their own military strength to save them, and worshiping their idols and calling it the work of their hands, calling it our God. God says of them in verse 4, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His roots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and shall dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Now, God here pronounces a beautiful blessing upon the nation of Israel. He tells them in all sorts of uh, phrases and all sorts of ways that they are going to be prosperous and fruitful once again, that they would come under his shadow, that they would flourish like grain and blossom like the vine, that their fame would spread throughout the world. Now, the interesting thing about this is that it's very difficult to find any historical fulfillment of this promise to the people of Israel. Yes, eventually, some from Judah did return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and to eventually rebuild the city. But this kind of glory that God is describing never really occurred in the time from the return or the time of Hosea's prophecy to the time of Christ. And of course, that glory still is not seen even to this day. 
It leads many to believe, and I'm with them, that Hosea is describing a future glory that will not occur until after the Great Tribulation and be fulfilled in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. In that moment, there will be grand national repentance unto God and great eschatological blessing from God during that millennial kingdom, as stated in Revelation chapter 20. Whoever is wise, verse 9, let him understand these things. So just sort of a final statement from Hosea. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. One of the beautiful statements here from Hosea is simply, listen to the word of the Lord. Let the book of Hosea stand for all believers of all time uh, regarding or about the importance of walking with God, being obedient to the Lord, continuing to maintain the closeness of fellowship and relationship with him. First Peter 2 verse 10 says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are the people of God. The Lord has called us. We weren't his people, but now we are. So let us behave as God's beloved bride. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.